remember when I was seven years old, it was my first at-bat in Little League, and, and this was before the wimpy dad pitcher t-ball, right? So I'm up there, and this great big nine-year-old is throwing bullets past me, and I strike out. And, and I know that's bad, you know, so I'm walking back to the dugout, and kind of tears coming down my face. My dad, who's an assistant coach, comes out, and he says, are you crying because you struck out? And he goes, bam! And he knocked me on the ground. And he said, I don't ever want to see you cry because you strike out. That's a reason to cry, and I'll get in the dugout. And uh, that was my dad. And he died two years ago. And here it is, Father's Day. And uh, as you can imagine, I've got some emotions going on inside me. But I also know that everyone in here has emotions about the Father. You see, because we all have one, right? And, and, and over the years, I've been teaching the Bible for about 20 years. Over the years, I don't think there's any subject that I teach on that evokes more emotion when I teach on fathers. Some of you, when you think of a father, you have these just positive emotions. You know, you, a loving, uh, caring, kind, safe presence. Some of you, like me, have emotions and, and images of anger and violence, and you didn't feel safe. And then there's some here who just have like this empty ache because they really didn't have a father image at all in their life. The sad fact is, tonight in the United States of America, 45% of all kids will go to bed without a father in the home. In the African-American community, it's almost 70%. And in the Native American community, among, among Native American Indians, it's almost 80%. Those are sad facts, folks. And it wasn't meant to be that way at all. In fact, there's an amazing moment in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 11, you know, Jesus is walking along with his 12 closest guys, his apostles, and they say, Lord, will you teach us how to pray? Now, you've got to understand, they've been with him for two years, right, at this point. They've seen him do all these amazing miracles. I don't know about you, but I'm not sure I'd be asking about prayer. You know, I'd be more like, hey, Lord, you know that thing where you walked in the water? Can you, te can you teach me to do that? Or better yet, where you took that water and turned it into that delicious wine? Can you teach me that? That's what I'd be asking about. And, and so why did they ask him about prayer? And I think we get the answer right in the very first sentence of what he said after that. And he says, okay, here's how you pray. Our Father. And, and that must have hit them like a lightning bolt, because you have to remember, this was a time of superstition. There were these pagan gods that were made up. There was the sun god and the moon god and the rain god and all these gods that people were bowing down to to try to get rain on their crops and all these other superstitious things. And by and large, if there wasn't enough rain, they'd sacrifice children to these gods. So they saw their gods as angry and unpredictable. And so for Jesus to say, our father would have hit them like a lightning bolt that would have stunned them. And for those who had positive father images, that must have been so comforting and encouraging. And for those who didn't, it must have been difficult. And I think Jesus knew that. Because just a couple of chapters later, he tells a parable that is by far his most famous parable. It's about, and the whole point of the parable, one of the main points of the parable, was to give an image of a perfect, loving father that a lot of people didn't have. 
And what I'm talking about is the parable of the prodigal son, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. It's in Luke chapter 15. Now, the interesting thing about the parable of the prodigal son is by most accounts, this is the most famous story in all of human history. And I'm not just talking about religious stories. I'm talking about all of human history. It has everything. It has high drama. It has triumph. It has tragedy. It has broken relationship and the heartbreak that goes with that, and then the joy and exaltation of restored relationship. It's got everything. It's had such an impact on our culture and in the world that Rembrandt's probably his most famous painting is a depiction of the prodigal son coming home to the father. Shakespeare is on record as saying two of his plays, King Lear and Henry IV, were based on the plot of the prodigal son. That is the kind of impact this parable has throughout humanity. And, and so I want to read it today. It's, it's worth all of us reading. And I really have two goals today. My first goal is that you might see clearly the love and the perfect, uh, the perfect unconditional love of the Father. And the second goal is in seeing that and grasping that you would feel such gratitude and joy that you would be a better father and a better parent. And so those are my goals today as we begin. So let's read the parable of the prodigal son. Oh, and, and first a little context, I'm sorry. Jesus has been dealing with and hanging out with sinners, right? It says sinners and taxpayers right at the beginning of chapter 15. And in today's equivalent, that'd be like saying, okay, this religious guy, this rabbi, he's hanging out with drug dealers, and, and con men, and thieves, and hookers, and drug addicts. What's he doing with those people? And the Pharisees are not happy about this. They say, hey, this guy's a religious rabbi. He's not supposed to be hanging out with those people. And so Jesus tells three parables in Luke 15, and this is the third one, and it is addressing both the, the sinners uh, and, and the tax collectors and the Pharisees. And it goes like this. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and now is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. 
Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he was home, because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. The word of God. So what I want you to see first of all here and I hope this is an encouragement to parents. Uh, this is a perfect father, okay? Because Jesus is telling this parable, and he's positioning this father as an image of the heavenly father. And you can see he's provided well for his family. He's built this wonderful business, this ranch or farm. They're wealthy, they're well-loved, they're well taken care of. And what happens? The prodigal son leaves. And the takeaway from this, folks, is we are to be responsible. We are to do our best to parent. But no matter how good you parent, that child you're bringing up will one day have their own will to do as they choose. And this young man, having a perfect father, rebelled. And so I hope that's an encouragement to you, that if any of you have a prodigal son anywhere along the way, or a prodigal child, if you've done your best, that's all you can do. They ultimately can choose. You know, someone once said, Adam and Eve had a pretty good dad, and look how they turned out, okay? You, you can't help how your child turns out. But I do want to say that does not mean that we don't have a responsibility to be good parents. We absolutely do, and the scripture is clear. We will be held accountable for how we fulfill that role of parenthood. Besides being a spouse, your role as parent is probably the second most important role you'll ever, ever fulfill on this earth. My question to you is, how are you doing? And I want to give you maybe three practical things to take away from today. And the first thing is, if you're not reading about parenthood, start reading about it. If you took up a new hobby, whether it was photography or triathlons or whatever it was, the first thing you'd probably do is go out and get magazines and books to read about it and learn and get better at it. Yet somehow we think that we know all there is to know about parenting. Dr. James Dobson has a wonderful ministry called Focus on the Family. It's got many wonderful resources about parenting. So I would strongly encourage you to go and do some reading. The second thing you need to do is you need to have a plan. Okay? You need to have some sort of plan for your kids. T. Boone Pickens, who's this famous oil man, one of the richest men in the world, says, you know what really helped me? When I was young, my dad would say over and over, son, you have to have a plan. You have to have a plan. And he would say, you know what? A fool with a plan will beat a genius without a plan every day of the week. And so you need to have a plan. You need to be intentional about how you parent. And the, the best thing I can tell you about that is you need to pour into them. So what have we been talking about the last six weeks? One-on-one. -on -one. I was talking uh, to Angelica Lopez, and she was saying, you know who I'm going to one-on-one first are my kids, and what a 
that is just so, so insightful, folks. And you think about the steps in that process. First thing is pray. Are you praying for your kids? Second thing is spend intentional time with them. Are you, are you setting aside time in an intentional, planned way to be with your kids? The third thing is talk with them. Guide them in to intentional, deep conversations. This is an opportunity for you to discuss the most important things of life, just like Tim was talking about, being the first one to talk to Graydon about God. And then invite them into a relationship with God and share your story. And so go through those cards, and the first people you need to be doing one-on-one with are your children. Now, what's really amazing is that this young man was growing up in a wealthy family. He had everything the world had to offer. And yet he goes off the deep end. He takes off. He leaves and goes, chases the things of the world. Why is that? If he had this wonderful setting and, and, and everything you could ever want. And I think the answer is in this little verse in Ecclesiastes. It's 3.11. It says, and God put eternity in our hearts. You see, God did that as a gift and as a grace to us. He, all of us know this world is jacked up, right? This world is broken. And we all have an ache in our heart to get reunited to God. We all understand that that perfect loving father that we've always desired is our father in heaven. But you know what we tend to do, especially in our culture these days, is we take that ache and we try to medicate it with sex and alcohol and drugs and money and material things. I know I did that until I was in my mid-30s. That's what I was doing. I know several guys in here who also did that. And you know what? Every person I ever talked to who went that direction was never satisfied. That ache in your heart, that God putting eternity in our heart is all about being directed to him. And if you don't direct it to him, you're going to find some other way to try to medicate that ache. And that's what the prodigal son did. He was looking for satisfaction that this world would never provide him. And so the parable really begins when he goes to his dad and says, Dad, give me my share of your estate. Now, you, you need to feel the weight of that, folks. I hope, you, I hope you feel the pain that must have been going through this, this, this man, this father. Because you know what his son was really saying? He was saying, Dad, you know what? I wish you were dead. I have no desire for a relationship with you. I just want your stuff. I don't care about you at all. In fact, it would be a lot easier if you were dead because then I could have my inheritance. And I want my stuff and I want it now. And I can't even imagine the hurt. And when Jesus is telling this story, the Middle Eastern culture is an honor culture. You do not insult your dad or anybody else in that culture. And I'm sure everyone in the crowd was thinking, oh, I know what's going to happen now. He's going to disown his son because the the Old Testament, the Jewish law, gave him the right to disown his son and disinherit him. And that's not what the father does. Beyond all expectations, the father says, okay, son. And, And again, you need to feel the weight of that. He doesn't have a bunch of money sitting in a bank and a stock portfolio. He's got a ranch. He's got cattle. What's he have to do? He's got to liquidate. He's got to sell some of his land. He's got to sell some of his cattle. Under Jewish law, the younger son was entitled to one-third of the estate. And so he had to liquidate one-third of his assets. And you know when you're selling like that, you're not getting top dollar. And he gives the one-third of the estate to the son. 
and the sun heads off. And turns out, the sun isn't exactly Bill Gates, right? He doesn't, he doesn't take the money and start some, some big firm that makes a lot of money, does he? He's more like Charlie Sheen on a limited budget, you know? He goes out there, and it says he spends it all in wild living. The first thing you notice is he didn't go to work, did he? I have a word to you, man. <laughs> Sorry about that. I don't think there's anything as dangerous as a bored man. You need to be working. Nothing good comes when you're bored and have nothing to do. And, and that's fine. If your wife works out the home, outside the home and you take care of the kids, just make sure you're working some way, shape, or form. Don't get bored. Stay active. Stay working. Otherwise, bad things happen. And so this kid wasn't working. So this is like the kid, the trust fund baby, who, who gets his money, goes, buys a condo in the hip part of town, right? Buys a BMW. But more than that, he wants to be popular. See, you know, whenever he's at the bar, he's buying drinks for all the guys and girls. He's taking his buddies. They're going to the strip clubs. He's buying lap dances for everybody. He's buying hookers. He's buying drugs. He's just living the life. And then all of a sudden, he runs out of money. And all those friends come help him, right? Uh, I think not. We see how many friends he had. He's all alone. He's got nothing. And the scripture also says that right at this time, there's a famine in the land. So in modern day times, that'd be like this big, deep recession, right? He's got no job. He's got nothing to do. Here's a good Jewish boy. And what does he end up doing? He works for a pig farmer. You need to grasp this, folks, that not only were Jews not allowed to eat pigs, these were unclean animals. They weren't allowed to be even around them. This is the most disgraceful, the lowest thing Jesus could insert into this story. The crowd would have been absolutely shocked that he fell to those depths. And when you do finally go to your deepest point, the worst point, so often this happens. It says... The son came to his senses. And he says, I need to go back. You know, my father's servants eat better than this. He's starving to death. He's longing to eat the pig food. He's starving to death. He says, my father's servants live better than this. And so he says, I'm going to go back. And that's the same concept as repent, as turn back. And that's really the moment of salvation for all human beings, isn't it? And he says, I have sinned against my father and against heaven. And that is the moment for all of us that we have to get to. That we realize we've sinned against a perfect and infinitely just God and turn back and say, Father, I've sinned. Will you please take me back? And so he does, and he heads on back. Now, what's been going on with the father during this time? Well, he's a loving father, and we get some idea what's going on because he sees him a long way off. So this is probably what's going on. He's probably, he's probably getting reports about his son, right? I mean, imagine the ache. He didn't disown him. He wants the relationship restored. And he's looking out the window. And he's getting the reports. He's saying, yeah, your son's falling in with a bad crowd. It's not, it's not good. And maybe a little while later, yeah, you know, he's, he's drinking a lot. He, it's not good. And then maybe the next report is, you know, he's, he's strung out on drugs now. And the next report, he's, he's run out of money. He's living on the street. I can't imagine that father every day, several times, probably looking out that window, just longing to see his son, hoping he wasn't dead. 
And then one day he looks out the window and sees somebody down the, in the distance. He goes, nah, that can't be my son. His, his hair's all matted. He's skinny as a rail. His clothes are d- disgusting and filthy. And, and I, he probably does a double take. He says, I know that walk. That's my son. And he runs out to his son. And again, I don't want you to miss this. In that culture, it would be unthinkable for an elder statesman, for a father to run. They had had these long robes. It was difficult to run. It was totally undignified, totally unacceptable. So when Jesus inserts this in the story, what he's saying is, our father loves us so deeply, he's not going to be prideful about it. He's not going to be demanding when we come back to him. He's going to love us so unconditionally that if we turn back, he's going to run to us. And this is the only place in the scripture where God is pictured as running. To go receive a repentant soul. And he gets to the prodigal son. And I'm sure he, had, he was stinky. He was filthy. He was disgusting. And, and you'd expect him to say, okay, son, back to the house, clean up. We'll talk about the conditions under which you're back in, in the family. But he doesn't do that. He hugs him. He kisses him. He loves him. And the son can't even get through his prepared speech. The father's just overwhelming him with affection. And fathers, I just want to make a note here. It's really important for us to be tough. We have to be tough sometimes. Okay? Kids need discipline. So we need to be tough. But if we're only tough, kids become angry and resentful. And we need to be tender. But if we're only tender, they become spoiled. And for an image of toughness, there's a I don't watch daytime TV, but I happened to see a video that came off the Jenny Jones show. And they have a feature, apparently, a pretty regular feature, where moms can bring troubled boys to the show. And for about three hours, they get them back behind stage with this drill sergeant. And he's just reaming them and and scaring the, the daylights out of them. And then at the end of the show, they bring him on stage, and by the way, they've threatened him, if you don't clean up your act, if you don't get your, your act straight, you're going to, the, the mother has the right to assign her custody to this guy until you turn 18, okay? And so they're freaking these young boys out. And so I want to see show you what happened one time on the Jenny Jones show. You love that woman right there? You love her, right? Yes, sir? Now, you're not an adult till you're 18. You want me to be your daddy for the next eight years, son? Huh? Yes, sir. You do? (laughs) Why do you want me to be your daddy? I have no daddy. You have no daddy? Well, let me tell you something. Come here. Give me a hug. to be tough and he knew when to be tender that's that's a good dad right there and so the father accepts the son back (laughs) i i choke up every time i teach this this parable he accepts him back into the family and it's it's a beautiful thing but there's an issue now and it's with the good son the older son and remember the older son represents the pharisees the pharisees are the religious guys. They can't believe that Jesus is hanging around with these sinners, these despicable people. And so when the prodigal son comes home, the older son says, 
Dad, what are you doing? You're not going to let him back in the family, are you? He says, yes, son, I am. And the father, no matter how hard the father pleads with the son, the older son never goes back in to the house. And that's the way the parable is left. We, we don't know what happened to those religious leaders. But over and over, the religious are the ones who have difficulty coming to Jesus. And so that's really the parable of the prodigal son. But I, I want to make sure that you understand a few things. In a parable, th this is actually the gospel, isn't it? I mean, isn't this a picture of the gospel? That's why Jesus told it. He's trying to communicate to them. Look, we have all fallen short. You Pharisees and you sinners, we've all fallen short. But no matter how, how much you've sinned, no matter how bad your sin has gotten, you're still going to be unconditionally accepted by God. And so we have this image of God running to the Son. The Son, Jesus tried to paint the, the portrait of the worst sinner he could imagine. And there's still reconciliation. But parables generally only show like maybe one characteristic, maybe two of God. It doesn't show the whole gospel here, folks. Don't miss this. Do not miss this. Listen. Our culture has devised this fantasy God, right? This God that's all peace, happy, joy, joy, love, kindness. The God of the universe has to deal with sin and evil. If God does not have a serious concern about evil and injustice, he's not a good God. If God does not legitimately deal with evil and injustice, he's not a good God. There's a lot of evil in this world. If it goes undealt with, then we don't have a good God in heaven, folks. And so what this parable doesn't talk about, although Jesus talks about it often, and the Bible talks about it often, is that God did deal with the evil and injustice. He dealt with it by paying for it himself. And so God comes down in the person of Jesus himself, lives the perfect life, takes all the punishment, all the debt upon himself that we should have paid, pays the price on the cross, rises again defeating death, so that we can have that reconciliation. So don't ever forget that step in the gospel. Yes, God died for us. Yes, he is unconditionally accepting of us. But God is not some sky fairy who sprinkles happy dust around. That is not a good God, and that is not the God of the universe. He is legitimately and seriously concerned with evil and injustice, and he dealt with it on the cross. And that's, that's what the, the prodigal son, that's what it stands for. You know, there, there's a lot of things that are hard to grasp about God. And I know I've had a lot of trouble grasping him because of the image of my father. And one of the things I, I think I always kind of thought was, you know, yeah, and all of us, some of you may feel the same way. You know, our, our parents came together, my parents came together one night, and, and nine months later I was born, and, you know, uh, but probably they had a bunch of regrets, you know, I wish Al was a little taller, you know, maybe I wish somebody was a little prettier or a little more athletic. You know, we have, we have these ideas 
that, yeah, our, my parents came together and their DNA got together and I was created, but it was just a bad night for their DNA, you know? And, and you can all pick things about what you don't like about yourself. And there's an image that somehow, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't quite up to speed, up to snuff. But that isn't what Psalm 139 says. I, I want to show that on the board here. Psalm 139 is this beautiful psalm. And verse 13 and 14 says this. And I've actually memorized this because I need it so deeply. It says, God's talking and he says, I created your inmost being. I knit you together in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And he wasn't just talking to me. He's talking to every one of you in here. Get this idea out of your head that your parents created you. You are sitting here today because the God of the universe created you. Each and every one of you was a conscious decision by the God of the universe. And he doesn't make junk. He doesn't have a bad day. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. There's not an accident in this room. There's not a mistake in this room. And I hope you can grasp that. You know, and the other thing... I, sometimes parents have sort of endearing nicknames for their kids, you know, just something that's warm and tender, and um, I didn't have that. My dad was uh, an alcoholic and a, and a very sarcastic, angry man, and, and I'm going to share with you his nickname for me, and, and kids, I apologize, this is not a word you should ever say, but it just, I just have to let you know that uh, somewhere along the line, I can't remember when it was, I did something wrong. He said, oh, you dumbass. And that sort of stuck. He'd say, how's it going, dumb, eh? Go get me a beer, dumb, eh? Until the day he died. That was his nickname for me. And it hurt. But, you know, there was a, a moment years ago when I was reading in the scripture and I came across this verse. And it is, without a doubt, the sweetest verse in the Bible for me. It's Revelation 2.17. And this will tell you all you need to know about God's intimacy and tenderness. You see, there's going to be a day when I go to be with my real father. And he's going to have a nickname for me also. And each and every one of you who gets reunited with your real father, you are going to have a new name. He's going to give it to you on this white stone. It's going to be known only to you and him. Is that amazing? He's going to have a tender nickname for each and every one of us. And I promise you, that nickname is going to be good and noble and strong and true. And mine is not going to be dumbass. Let's pray.